0: Again, what a uh, <laughs> what a morning, right? Well, we are uh, slaves to technology in a lot of ways, and we're uh, we're thankful for the opportunity the Lord's given us to to worship with you this morning, and um, pray that you were able to rejoin us for the live stream. Sorry about the technical difficulties, and we you deal with what you have. But as of next week, we will have uh, a lot of you, if not most of you. In person, and so we look forward to that, and uh, we'll still be live streaming. So we will still working through technical issues with that. But God, God bless you for uh, staying with us. We are dealing with, and as James continues to deal with, we are dealing with the end of this section. Now, James has been dealing with the topic of worldliness. Now, that topic really started in James chapter 3, verse 13, and it continues onward to verse 10 of chapter 4. It's one large section, and James is even asked the rhetorical question at the end, and several rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 3, well, excuse me, in the middle of chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He speaks about and he asks about, does a fountain send forth the same water? Or can a fig tree produce a different fruit? Or an olive tree produce a different fruit? He's talking about the human heart. And he's basically saying that can can a, a certain object in nature produce something different than what it was intended? And how preposterous, how absurd it is that as humans, as men and women, as Christians, even more particular, that we can love God and still play footsie with the world, that we can, we can be a friend to God and try to be a friend of the world, or, or vice versa. How preposterous is that? And so James addresses that, and he begins in verses 13 to chapter 3, and he finishes up what we're going to be finishing up today in verse 10. And then the way that he addresses it is a very interesting way, because he addresses it by dealing with the human heart. Now, biblically speaking, the human heart is made up of three, there's three aspects. And you'll see this over and over in Scripture. When the, when the Scriptures speak about the human heart, you need to realize that from a, from a Jewish context, from a, from a biblical context, the heart is made up of three parts. There is the first part, which is all about the cognitive aspects of man. It's about what we know and what we believe. Because what we believe determines how we act and determines how we feel. And you see that in James, the section verses 13 through 18, when James deals with wisdom. He basically says, you know, you're driven either by God's wisdom or you're driven by worldly wisdom. It affects how you relate to the world around you. It affects what you value. And what you feel is based off of what you value. And what you value is what you determine to value. And so it's, it's, a, it's a understanding, it's the knowledge about this world that you live in. And so James chastised these believers, first of all, for, for believing the lies of Satan, the demonic wisdom about their condition, about the nature of man, about how to understand God. And you can see the results of this false belief in their behavior. He says they have bitter jealousy among them. There's disorder. There's every evil thing. And so James rebukes them. They're not living according to the truth. And then he moves on in what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks in verses 1 through 7, or 1 through 6, excuse me. And he's dealing with... The, the second part of the human heart, it's our affections, our desires, it's the seat of emotion. So not only do you have a, the, the cognitive part, which is belief and understanding, you have the emotional part, the, or the, the, sits, the, excuse me, the seat of our desires. And the third part, which we'll deal with in a minute, deals with the will. So those are the three parts. But the second part, James deals with the, the desires and the affections and the emotions of a person. And he rebukes these believers. He says, look, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts? Why is there arguments? And he says, well, it's because you have made your pleasures an idol in your heart. You've basically given yourself over to your desires. And when you can't have the desires of your heart, when those things aren't fulfilled in your life, then you take it out on other people. You see that with angry husbands. Husband is angry at his wife. Well, why is he angry? Well, there's a deeper issue in his heart. And so James says, look, the, the, the desires that you've given yourself over into have consequences. You, you've given yourself over. Your, your emotions show what you value. And what you value is the things of this world. And he makes that plain in verse 4 when he calls them adulteresses or adulterers. He basically says, you're committing a spiritual adultery. You've committed to Christ, and yet you have a love for the world. And James even goes into just the weight of that when he says, if you've made yourself a friend to the world, you're actually making yourself an enemy of God. And so James is is showing and addressing not only the, the... the belief system of the heart. he's addressing the emotions and the desires of the heart, because that's we're, we're emotional beings. We're, we're cognitive beings, but we're also beings that have will and volition. And that's what he's going to address today in verses seven through 10. He's addressing the, the choices that we make, because the intentions of our heart drive us to act. We make choices based on the loyalties that we have. and when our loyalties are divided, the choices are hypocritical and inconsistent. James even, as we'll see, he actually says that they are that these believers and those who love the world and try to love God at the same time are double-minded. They're divided in their, their loyalties. And so, James is going to challenge these believers from a will standpoint. It's interesting, when you look at these verses, 7 through 10, there's 10 aorist imperatives for you, Jordan. There's 10 imperatives, 10 commands for us as believers. So, James doesn't pull any punches, and he wants to shock these believers. He wants to, to shock you out of your complacency. He wants to shock you out of your worldliness. He's dealt with your your beliefs, He's dealt with your emotions, and now He's going to deal with your will. You know, in our society, we have many medical cures, many many medical um, remedies for lots of diseases, and I'm thankful for that. It's God's grace, His common grace to humanity. As we move farther and farther away from the fall, the degradation and depravity to continue. And, and we see this in the corruption that's in the world. We see this in the corruptions in our bodies. And God, in His common grace, has given us the, the miracle, basically, of modern medicine. And so, James is saying here in verses 7 through to 10, 7 through 10, excuse me, of chapter 4, that He's going to give us a remedy against sin. A remedy against the worldliness. That's what I've titled my sermon this morning, A Remedy or The Remedy for Worldliness. And we know, as believers, that the battle against sin is a daily battle. And it's tough and it's hard. At times we feel like the Apostle Paul in Romans seven: oh wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And but James offers hope. He's he's illuminated, he's unmasked the worldliness in their lives. He's condemned that worldliness. And now he gives hope like a great preacher. He doesn't just leave his congregants, leave his sheep in despair, but he offers hope. He offers a remedy for the worldliness that so easily besets these believers and so easily besets us. And James addresses their wills. Well, in James chapter 4, 7 through 10, we're going to see the remedy for worldliness. We're going to see, first of all, the command to submit ourselves to God. Then we're going to see what submission looks like in your life. And then he's going to end with a very similar command. He's going to command you to humble yourself before God. So let's go ahead and look at the text and then we'll dig in this morning. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, sorry, excuse me, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So first of all, James gives us the command to submit ourselves to God. This is the remedy for sin. This is the remedy for worldliness. And in the context, he has just said in verse 6 that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs 3, 34. Now in this context, he says that God gives grace to the humble person. In order to receive that grace there must be a personal and humble response to who god is. and so when you think about submission, what is submission? All right, we don't really use that term very often in our society today. well, submission means to willingly place yourself another under another's authority. it's uh, as used in a military term of a of a soldier placing himself under the authority of his captain. not because he has to because he desires to. And James is calling believers to recognize God's rightful authority and sovereignty over your life. It's a voluntary subordination to God's will rejection of your own. God does not want forced obedience. He wants willful submission. And so, for James's perspective, and it ties into verse 6, it's hard for the proud person to submit. The person that is self-reliant and thinks they are self-sufficient and, and has to be in control of everything, they don't want to release that control, even though that control is an illusion. They don't want to release that control and rely on the Lord and submit to the Lord. And without submission, there's going to be no Grace. Because God opposes, He resists, He's an antagonist to the proud. And brethren, submission to the Lord is essential in your fight against sin and worldliness. You know, it's a commitment. It's a commitment that you made. When you believed in Jesus Christ and you became one of His disciples, you accepted Him as Lord and Savior. It's a commitment to obey him and follow him the rest of your life. You need to count the cost. That's why Jesus, when he in his evangelism, he challenged those that would come to him to count the cost. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, submission is is not not something that we can just push aside. Right? It's required; it's not conditional. John fourteen twenty one: Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Now, one thing about submission is understanding that God's will is good for you, because that's what you really comes down to when you when you're struggling with sin, and you're struggling with trials and temptations. You have to believe that God is good and that His will for your life is good. You've got to believe that all good things come from John. James has already said this in James chapter 1, verse 17. You have to believe that, that God works all things for your good. We, we often quote that verse in Romans eight twenty eight. 28, but, but that ultimate good is your sanctification. It right? doesn't mean that you're going to get lots of good things. It means that God is working the, the providential aspects of your life for His glory and your good. Well, you, you understand that trials are meant for your good. James has talked about this in James chapter 1, basically verses 2-4, through 4, where trials are good for us and then they, they cause us to persevere. They, they help us to, to grow in our faith towards God and they, they make us more mature as Christians. We also know that God's will for us is good, right? God's will is best for us. When we follow God's will and we line up our our lives with His will, we remove ourselves from so much heartache and sin, but we also gain the joy of knowing we're doing what God wants us to do. But we also know that God's providence is good. And this is one of those things that's, that's often overlooked in our society and even in today's churches that God orchestrates circumstances. So when you don't get that promotion that you wanted, it's good for you. When your your car doesn't start in the morning, it's good for you. Those those things that happen when we lose internet in the middle of a church service, God is working that in His providence to our good. And that's about trusting Him. And so submission is, is just is trusting in the Lord and submitting your, your will and your ways to His Lordship, knowing that He has your best interest at heart. When I worked as a, in the delivery business, I would, I would go in these convenience stores, these petrol stations, and I would be restocking shelves and and I'd get these guys, or I'd see these guys come in at the, at the end of the week on Fridays, and what they would do is they would come in and they would buy a, a 24-pack of beer, and they would spend $100 on lottery tickets, right? Because everybody wants to get out from under the effects of the fall. And the, the effects of the fall are that we have to work hard, work by the, the sweat of our brow, and everybody wants to get rich quick and get rich for nothing, and so they're, they're gambling their money away, and they, these same guys, as I would be in these same petrol stations week after week, I would see these same guys spend their money on this. The sad thing is, is occasionally I would see a Christian that I knew come in and do, do something similar, and then they would put their hard-earned money down for lottery tickets. And what they're really showing Is the same thing. They want to get out from under the effects of the fall. They want something for nothing. But they're also showing a lack of trust in the Lord. If God wanted them to have more resources, He would give them more resources. So they weren't trusting God's providence. They were trying to to do an end around God's providence and get money quick. You see, submission is, is trusting in God and His goodness. But we see also, James just doesn't leave that there. He could just easily say, brethren, submit to God, and then he pack it up and we go home. But James gives us more because he wants these believers to fully understand what submission is, and he wants you to understand. And that's where the rest of this section comes in. Basically, verses, the second half of verse 7, all the way to verse 9, describes or shows how submission is demonstrated in your life. So the first thing is you to submit yourselves to God. The second is Christ, or excuse me, submission is demonstrated in your life in verses 7 through 9. Well, the first way that that submission is demonstrated is in Christ's lordship. It says in verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This couplet goes together. And first of all, he's talking about authority when we talk about Christ's lordship. Because if, you, if you're submitting to God, you're resisting Satan. Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But James has already said, look, if you love the world, you're, you're making yourself an enemy of God. Who is an enemy of God? Satan is. He loves discord. He loves division. He loves it when believers love the things of this world, they love their sin and they separate themselves from God. And their fellowship. Now they don't permanently separate themselves. You can't lose your salvation, but you can separate yourself from a fellowship standpoint. And Satan loves that. When James says, look, don't give in to that. Understand where whose authority you're supposed to be submitting to. He says, resist. Means I mean, stand against. It's a military term to, to dress up in your armor, the armor of God, and resist those that are opposed to you, that want your downfall. It's perpetual resistance. I heard a great term that one of the commentators said, it's a perpetual resistance movement. And that's what we are. We're aliens and strangers in this world. 1 John chapter 5 says the world lies in the power of the evil one. We're the resistance movement. We're salt and light and darkness and in the corruption of this world. Submitting to to God's authority means rejecting Satan's authority, rejecting Satan's will, rejecting the things of this world that lie in his power. And understand that the devil, a word here means slanderer, and his principal activity is the sow discord destruction, division. He is God's enemy and will be. The devil desires for Christians to submit to him. And they submit to him by loving the things of the world. He wants them to indulge in sinful pleasure, pleasure excuse me. To, to see the allure of the things around them and, and doubt God's goodness. And in turn... Love the things of the world and, and become a friend to it. Look, if you see Satan, you see Satan around us. You see the world and its discord and riots, discontent. It goes back to the fundamental hatred of authority. Satan hated God's authority. Satan wanted to be God, so why he was thrown out of heaven. All right? What did Satan tempt Eve? He'd tempt Eve to what? Reject God's authority. She went to, to, to be like God. And then, Satan, and then same thing with Adam. And so the lie of Satan that so many people believe and you see in our world is that all authority is tyrannical, that we have to rebel in our hearts against authority. And you see this against the government, against police, against teachers, against anyone in authority, public figures. Because authority must be bad if it's in authority. But God has given authority figures in our life. He teaches us literal submission by putting people in our lives that we have to obey. We have to listen to bosses, government, police. And there's consequences if you don't. Because the the basic premise is if you can't submit to those that you can see, then how are you going to submit to God? You can't see. And so don't believe Satan's lie, brethren. If you won't accept Christ's lordship, you won't accept his authority and will, then you're exercising your own authority, you're exercising your own standard, you're living by your own prideful will, and you're aligning yourself up with Satan. How strong is that? Satan desires... What he wants, he wants discord and division. And by the way, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. They're diametrically opposed to one another. So in that authority, it says, well, if you resist Satan, James actually says, Something wonderful here. He says, if you resist as you're submitting to God, you're resisting the devil, actively resisting the things of this world, and what happens? Satan will flee from you. So successful resistance is possible. Indecision and doubt don't work against temptation. Satanic opposition. It's a firm confidence, faith in God's promises, and trust In the Holy Spirit's work to repel the devil. You see, Satan can't lead you to sin without the consent of your will. The whole thing, the devil made me do it, is not true. You did it. You chose to sin. You chose to go after the things of the the world. It was your will that lined up with your desires. And so, a will that is submissive to the Holy Spirit's leading and control can stand victorious against the schemes of Satan. And that's where Paul has the the elaborate picture of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. If you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 really quick, and you'll see this armor. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says, "'Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm.'" Verse 14, "'Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace.'" In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which would you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So all of these things, this is the the believer you're fully standing against the schemes of Satan as you're submitting to Jesus Christ. You see, when you, when you submit to Christ and his, you're submitting to His Lordship, you're resisting all challenges to His will and His authority. You've committed yourself. You've committed yourself to be Christ's disciple. And now to go back to worldly living is to be a friend of the world, to line yourself up with Satan. You must submit yourself. You must demonstrate, excuse me, your submission By having Christ as Lord of your life. But not only is there the the authority aspect of submission. The authority aspect of Christ's lordship. But there's also the fellowship. The sweet communion that we have. Look at James continues and he says. Draw near to God in verse 8. And he will draw near to you. What a great, great promise. God. Well, first of all, it indicates there's a separation, right? We're separated from God by our sin. And James is saying, look, you must return to God. You resist Satan. You submit to God's authority. And an aspect of submitting to God's authority is you get God. You get him as a, as a friend as in fellowship with him. He's saying, draw near, approach. It's used of the priests in the temple who are are able to come to God as acceptable worshipers. We we gain communion. We're we're communing with the Lord. We're We're in deep fellowship with Him. You know, it's a longing. A longing to be in the closest possible fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His love for us, we love Him. We're thankful. We're thankful that we don't face eternity with God's wrath being poured upon us in the lake of fire forever. We have have an eternity with Jesus Christ. James is saying, look, resist Satan and, and draw near to God. Seek restoration to fellowship that has been broken by sin and worldliness. And how, how sweet is this? If we draw near to God, He will draw near to you, right? You're assured of a favorable response by God. If you approach Him in submission and humility, right, you will get what you're seeking, Jeremiah 29, 13, now this is in reference to the Israelites when they are to be restored from captivity, but the the concept is repeated in the New Testament. In Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You think about God drawing near to us, What what a wonderful thought that is. And this is the first way that submission is demonstrated. It's demonstrated in Christ's lordship, which is about authority and it's about communion. Resisting the devil and his temptations is one aspect and then drawing near to, to God is the other. I mean, one of the reasons that, that Satan flees from you is, is not because you're wonderful and you're powerful and you're, you're great and you're strong. It's because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He's not looking and fleeing from you in particular. He's fleeing from the presence of God in your life. And they go together. That's submitting to God. It's Christ being Lord of your life in everything. The authority aspect and the communal aspect. But not only is there Christ's lordship that demonstrates the submission in your life, but there's also cleansing from sin in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, he's talking about, you think about our hands when he says, cleanse your hands. What are your hands? Your hands are instruments. Instruments for good or instruments for evil. Our sinful actions are committed by our hands. And it's a picture of of our actions and and what we do. You think about Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So God says, So when you spread, and he's talking about the Israelites, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. You see, our hands become dirty and stained by the sin of this world. And the, the cleansing here, when he says, cleanse your hands, it's another one of those Levitical priestly terms that the priest would have to be ceremonial cleansed before they could go for sacrifices to God. They would have to be set apart and he's talking about, James is talking about taking that in a, in a figurative standpoint of a cleansing from the defilement of sin in our lives. And it's an earnest it's a imperative again. It's a, it's a commandment. It's our personal duty to confess sin and stop our rebellion against Christ and His will. We have to withdraw from every worthless and sinful deed. And confess that before the Lord. First John 1:7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. James doesn't pull any punches. He says, Cleanse your hands or, or confess your sins and stop what you're doing, you sinners. Well, wow, that'll preach. That's seeker-sensitive, right? You sinners. He's trying to prick their conscience because he's, he's basically saying, look, you're guilty of not maintaining your holiness, the holiness that God requires for fellowship with His people. We were first teaching my daughter to wash her hands, we were telling her to you know, she needed to count to, to 30. and she would go, one, two, three, seven, 12, 15, 25, 30, yeah, I'm done! Think about it, that's that's how we are often as believers with, our, with God about our sins. We say, oh God, please forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my trespasses. Lord, now give me grace. But we, we say it in a general way, Lord, I'm just forgive me for my sins. That's what we say in the morning and we keep going. What sins are we asking for? What are we asking for forgiveness about? What are we confessing? What is the Holy Spirit pricking your heart about? What are the things in your life that you've made an idol and you're holding it? You have to be open with God because we need that cleansing to have close communion with God because we need to be morally and spiritually pure. If sin separates God's people from Him from fellowship wise, sin causes you to become a a hypocritical worshiper. In Psalm 50, we see this where God's people, they, they knew the truth. They knew the right way to do sacrifices, but yet they didn't live it out in their daily lives. As the Holy Spirit brings these issues, the sin in your life to your your mind and tweaks and and prods your conscience, you need to be sensitive, you need to confess that sin. It's how you have clean hands. You you stop the sin as the Holy Spirit brings those things to your mind as, as He searches your heart. Shows you the things unacceptable. And that's why the word of God is so important. Because as we study the word of God, the Holy Spirit reveals God's righteousness and His holiness and His His will for us. And we realize our standard and our lives fall far short. But James continues, and he says, not only clean your hands, in other words, stop the sin and confess it, but he says, purify your hearts. It's another ceremonial term. The Levi, excuse me, for the Levites. It's a Levitical term to, to come to God in right worship. Once again, it's the, it's the removal of those things that disqualify you from proper worship. He's, again, he's meaning it on a figurative way of, of moral and spiritual Purity. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, Psalm, the psalmist asks the question, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, who may come to God in His presence and worship Him? And the answer, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to falsehood and does not swear deceitfully. It's a pure heart that's required for proper worship of the Lord. It's a heart that has been cleansed from sin. Brethren, your purification, first of all, occurs when you believe in Jesus Christ, right? We're regenerated. We're given a, a new heart. We're born again, and we're, we're cleansed from wickedness and sin, right? We've been washed white as snow. He, can, he purifies us. And then He continually purifies us through the process of sanctification, Matthew five eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. James says, purify your hearts, it's just that center of understanding and emotion, the center of will, all three. Well, Christ makes us pure at salvation. Revelation one five, to Him who loves us and has been, who has released us from our sins by His blood. But he also purifies our heart through sanctification. It's a, a continual comf, uh, cleansing from sin as we confess that before him. First John three two, beloved, we are now children of God, and when he sorry, and we will be as not yet been revealed. What we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him. Purifies himself just as Christ is pure. 2 Corinthians 7 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's the point of sanctification. It's, it's preparing us for a future eternity with Christ. We're being made holy now. We aren't fully holy. We aren't fully ready, and it's a process which takes the, the rest of our lives as we what? As we submit to Christ. James doesn't pull any punches again. He says, you double-minded. He's talking about di- divided affections. He's already said, like, you're trying to be a friend of the world and a friend of God. They're vacillating in their faith. James has already talked about this vacillation in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says that it's a doubting, a a wavering faith. You see, God demands your undivided affections, your single-minded allegiance. James actually says that those that are are double-minded are unstable. I was reading about blue honey the other day when I, I was just flipping through and I ran this article about these bees that make blue and green honey in France. And they couldn't figure out why this honey was coming out blue or was coming out green. And they, they did a little bit of research and they, they they traced the bees path back to the source where they were getting the the, the source of the the pollen or source of the, the sucrose to try to figure out, well, where is this What's going on? Well, why is this honey blue? Why is this honey green? And they traced the source back to an M&M factory. Mars makes M&M's, you know, there's blue M&M's, there's green M&M's, and they traced it back, and what they were doing, the, the, the company, the, the factory was dumping used sugar outside in piles that they would later, later disperse and get rid of it, but, but until they were ready to, to get rid of it, they would just dump it in piles. It's a blue pile and a green pile, and the bees were attracted to the sugar, and they were getting the sugar, and they were taking it back, and blue honey was produced, or green honey was produced. Well, see, for us as believers, it comes back to the source, right? God desires us as His people to have, have hearts that are singularly devoted to Him and not have divided affections. We focus on the, the source of grace, right? The source of our allegiance, and that's Jesus Christ Himself, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's a tough battle in the sense of against sin, But our purity comes from Christ. We confess our sins. We're cleansed by His blood. We have to have an awareness of sin. And as you confess your sins, you you humbly ask God for for cleansing from the unrighteousness to restoration of fellowship. And James continues and he says, look, let me show you what genuine repentance looks like. Verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's talking about repentance. So when it comes to submission, there's a, what a, 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 an understanding of Christ's lordship. There's a cleansing from sin, but there's a genuine repentance, because when genuine repentance involves two things in jobs, involves a change in attitude, and it involves. A change in affections. James begins with a change in attitude. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. And, and he throws these terms out and it's like staccato, bam, bam, bam. Be miserable, be mourn and weep. He's trying to get these believers' attention and, and yours as well. Miserable means to be, to be grieved. Really, it means to be wretched. We just sung that song. Everybody knows Amazing Grace. I've been in a bar with unbelievers, karaoke night, and I was a non-believer and I heard unbelievers singing Amazing Grace. Because Amazing Grace, that saved what a wretch like me. James here says, you need to be wretched. You need to have a recognition of your condition of sinfulness and the, the weight of that condition should make you feel wretched, it should grieve you. You understand your, your shame because of your sinful pursuits and, and making the, the world a friend. And when that true realization hits you, it hits home and it hits hard, there should be a feeling of unworthiness and wretchedness before the Lord. And East James says, not only should you feel, uh, be miserable and be wretched, but you should mourn. There should be deep feelings because of that wretchedness. There should be a grieving. There should be an intensity. You go to a funeral home of someone who has lost a loved one they, they deeply adored, And you'll see mourning. You'll see intensity of feeling that, that's not concealed. And then what else will you'll see? You'll see weeping. And this is the result, the emotional overflow of, of co- being cognizant of your wretched state before the Lord and the choices that you've made to love someone and something other than Jesus Christ. There's sobbing, there's crying because of sin and shame. It's emotional expression. Our emotions are, are, are come out based on what we value. And when we value Christ, we can't help but be overcome by our unworthiness. Think about Peter. Most of you, if not all of you, know the story of Peter's denial of Christ. And after the cock crowed in Matthew, sorry, in Mark fourteen seventy two, said immediately Peter broke down and wept. What did he weep at? He wept at his denial of Jesus. At his sin, it grieved him. This is repentance. Repentance isn't just I'm sorry that I got cults, or I'm sorry that there are genuine consequences for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry that I've sinned against God. I'm sorry that I've rejected Him as my Lord. I'm sorry that I've separated myself from fellowship. I'm sorry that I've forgotten the Blood of Christ, and it's well, the sacrifice of Christ for my sin. You see, repentance involves a change in attitude, and James draws these three terms and he uses them like an Old Testament prophet calling for a change in attitude towards sin. And when we fall into sin, it's because we have taken sin lightly, we've thought of God too little and our desires too much. James is talking about a sorrow that that leads to a change in life. It's not just saying you're sorry, but it's being sorry enough to quit the sin. But not only is it a genuine repentance, a change in attitude, it's a change in affections, James says in verse nine, and let your laughter be turned to gloom and your mourning sorry, gloom let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. So your emotions show what you value, and this laughter, this is an unseemly, loud, boisterous, pleasure seeking joy and laughter. You've all heard it. I hear it around my home once every couple of weeks. The neighbors that are laughing and boisterous because they they've had too much to drink and the party goes on past midnight. These are the type of people that they laugh. They don't take things seriously. Definitely not sin, and definitely not the judgment that's coming because of sin. It's a it's a carefree attitude that that loves to be happy and and seeks happiness at the cost of everything. It has that attitude that that. That's actually one of those attitudes that spin around, and we we use this term, and it's even quoted in Isaiah, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. How many times have you heard that, that expression or hear parts of that, eat, drink, and be merry? James says, look, stop laughing. Sin is serious. You need to be mourning over your sin." Need to understand it's a front to God because ultimately, either you mourn for your sin now in humility and submission, or you'll mourn when you stand before Christ and He evaluates your life and He shows you all the waste. What a terrible thing. Can you imagine standing before the Lord in His beam of judgment seat when He's evaluating your life and He's meting out rewards? And he, and he plays your life back on that heavenly DVD player. And he looks at you and he says, what a waste. Ecclesiastes 7, 6. For, the, for like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. But James says, let your laughter be turned. It's a complete reversal. It's a 180 degree turn, letting the Holy Spirit work as He's convicting you. Confess your sins, repent, turn away from them, and change. You don't have to do it on your own. You have what? God gives grace to resist the world and resist sin. And He says, let your your laughter be turned to, to what? To mourning. And then let your joy be turned to gloom. Now he's not talking about the joys we commonly think of joy. He's talking about a, a superficial happiness because of the pleasures of sin. True joy cannot be experienced by someone who tolerates sin and loves the world. But that gloom is a it's a downcastness caused by a heavy heart of people who are aware of their sin and how it affronts God. Can't help but think about the prodigal son. And I was thinking about repentance and thinking about his attitude and his change, when you think about the the prodigal son, he he came to his, his senses and he says, verse 17 of Luke 15, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I am dying with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But then what did he do? It wasn't just a change in attitude. He got up and came to his Father. It's repentance. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry for my sin and my sad situation, but I'm going to make amends. I'm going to change. I'm going to turn from laughter to mourning, from boisterous and superficial happiness and the pursuit of that to to gloom and understanding my sin as it is, an affront to God and how it separated me from my Father, and I'm going to return to my Father. Repentance is turning from the world and the sinfulness around us and the sin of our idols of our hearts to our first love, Jesus Christ. It involves a change in affections, change in attitudes, and understanding that a serious breach has occurred, and desiring to be restored to God. That repentance may involve making amends and being restored to others as well. And the sin that you commit, because you you sin indiscriminately, but you also sin on purpose. It's intentional and indiscriminate. Pray that God will show you your sin, that you may confess it and repent. And James ends ends on a final note. And this verse 10 goes along with... Verse seven, they're kind of buddies in the sense that they go along together. Because if you if you're submitting, you're humble, and if you're humble, you're submitting. But he says, "Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you." Hum- humility is a spiritual pro- poverty. Excuse me, it's recognizing your need, your need for His grace, and your own unworthiness. It's not forced humiliation, but it's willful submission. It's Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, humble yourself in the presence. That's the understanding that, that, that you're under God's watchful eye. He sees everything and He knows everything. And if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you take Him everywhere. We are the temple of God. Submission is drawing near, and and as you draw near, it produces a greater humility in your life. And remember, that humility is the way that you experience God's grace. God is opposed to the proud. He resists the proud. He opposes the proud. He's the antagonist to the proud. But what He gives grace to the humble, verse 6, chapter 4. Humility is an attitude that's, that was produced in our lives to respond to the greatness of God's nature and His redemptive work in Jesus Christ. As we reflect on His love for us, we can't help but be humble. I love that old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory. grace. You see, humble yourselves, submit yourselves. But there's a promise. I love this promise. And He will exalt you. How are you exalted? We're exalted now because we're pardoned. Right, we we have we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. We have grace in our lives as we confess our sins and we repent of those sins. We have a restoration of fellowship when we every time we sin, we we confess that sin. We're restored to fellowship as we repent. We we get to enter God's presence. Ephesians three twelve in Him, in whom talking about Jesus Christ, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith. You see, exaltation always leads through the valley of humility. But it's also future when it's fully realized we'll be exalted when Christ returns. And we no longer struggle with this body of sin and flesh, but we'll be fully glorified with a body that's able to to endure without sin. And we have a future inheritance that is reserved in heaven that is undefiled, imperishable. It's waiting for us. You see, victory over sin, Satan, and this world happens not because we're smart, we're experienced, we're savvy, we're strong, but it's achieved as we submit to Jesus Christ in humility. As He gives us grace, we can resist the world, we can resist Satan, we can resist the flesh, and we can walk faithfully with God. It's not too Now, it is a battle, but you have the Holy Spirit that strengthens you, that empowers you, and you have a greater grace. I was reading the other day about German battleship Bismarck. And you know how they destroyed the German battleship Bismarck? I don't know if you know the story. He destroyed the the battlecruiser Hood during World War II. But they, the British sent some old World War II seaplanes, biplanes with torpedoes. And these antiquated planes dropped torpedoes. And one of the torpedoes in, in God's providence hit the rudder of this, this great ship and it destroyed the rudder. And the rudder was stuck and the ship was only able to, to, to just sail in circles. And a ship that can't go anywhere is a dead duck. And they found it and they sank it. Well, for so many of us as Christians, we live our lives just, just going in circles. And by our sin, we, we deny the advancement of our sanctification. We refuse to deal with our sin where it is. We refuse to, to deal with the idols in the heart. And we're just circling. We're not heading anywhere. But James gives you the means, the, the understanding, the, the remedy for sin and worldliness. James says, submit to God. Understand that He's your Lord, He's your authority, and He wants to be close to you, draw near to Him. So submit to Him, and then as you're submitting to Him, there's going to be confession of sin, there's going to be repentance. And that in turn will lead to greater humility. And God gives grace to the humble. It gives a greater grace, a grace that allows you to resist sin, resist the world, resist Satan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. What a challenge it is. Lord, search our hearts, Holy Spirit. Show us the things in our lives that are unacceptable to you, the secret sins. Use others in our lives to hold us accountable to help, help us see the sin that we're even blind towards so that we may be, be willing to have clean hands to confess that sin, to repent of that sin so that we may continue in our fellowship with you unstained by this world. Lord, how often we struggle against the flesh and we long for the day when there will be no struggle. We pray, Oh Jesus, come. Free us from this body of sin and body of death. We thank you for the salvation, for the purity you brought in their hearts through your sacrifice. So oh Jesus Christ, we thank you that we can be cleansed continually through that blood as we're submissive and as we're humble. Help us to love you continually, to reject this world, reject those things that entice us and allure us. Help us to walk with you. Give us grace. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.